0: Morning. morning. Now tell the truth, how many of you just enjoyed it a little bit watching a missions video that they're not in shorts and t shirts? Right? Come on. They tried to make us feel bad because of the mountains, but you saw the snow, right? I never heard such whining when they saw the weather. You heard it last week, right? Oh no, we're going to die. It's going to be 30. Come on, there's 30 in my house. Um, Anyway, this morning we're going to continue the series the pastor started last week called Passing the Test looking at whether Christianity passed the test of the challenges that are thrown at it. Um, It's important to remember, though, when we look at some of these questions that come, it isn't just Christianity that has to answer them. G.K. Chesterton said, the tendency when it's it's hard to believe is to turn away from Christ. He goes, but to what? Other views that would replace it have to also answer some of these hard questions. And we need to be aware of that and not always fail on the defensive. But today we're going to look at some specifically some passages Or some challenges that come at the scriptures relating to difficult passages, difficult teachings in the Bible that seem harsh and seem unreasonable. And how do we handle those? Have you ever heard someone say something like this? I can't believe in the Bible because it's anti-science. I can't believe in the Bible because it endorses slavery. I can't believe in the Bible because it commands genocide. Or I can't believe because it's so anti-woman, it's so misogynistic. We hear those things, and when those questions come, they don't come in kind tones, do they? Very often they're condescending and mocking, and they're meant to make Christians look and feel stupid, immoral, or even evil. So what do we do? How do we handle that? Well, there's a couple things that we want to think about first. The first one is, don't actually be stupid, immoral, or evil. right? When we live according to the Scriptures, our lives are a beautiful testimony, right? And they show the legitimacy of the faith, and people see that. And honest seekers are drawn to that, right? But when we don't, it doesn't really matter how smart we are or how well we can argue. No one's going to be attracted to someone you know, who treats them harshly. We need to remember there's no shortcut. Um, we have to live what we, what we believe. The second thing is to be prepared. We can't, and this is a problem that the church has, has had for ages. It's a problem today is we have a very shallow view of our faith. We don't know it. We kind of treat it like a software license agreement, right? We scroll to the bottom quickly and click I agree. We have a kind of an idea of what's in there, we know the big stuff, but we haven't read all the fine print and we don't really know it and we don't really understand it. And very often we can't give answers because we don't know them ourselves. And that's a challenge for the church. Uh, Pastor Barton referred to this a few weeks ago when he talked about he mentioned the fact that if we don't get stuck on our walk with the Lord and we don't proactively seek to grow. and and do the work that it takes to do that. We actually have to, I know it's a dirty word, once you finish high school or maybe college, we have to study. We have to read, we have to look at things. You have to do those things. You're not done yet learning, right, when you finish school. C.S. Lewis said this. He wrote this 70 years ago in Mere Christianity. He says, in other words, theology is practical, especially now. In the old days, when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with a very few simple ideas about God. God. But it is not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. If you want to test this, hang around a funeral. And you hear things said, and it's sad to say, even a Christian, it's one of the saddest things. People say things all the time. You go, that's not what the Bible says. And you want to be nice and you want to be kind. And I think the best thing sometimes is just to not say anything. But we know that there are times that we're sad because our life, someone's reached the end of a life and they haven't served the Lord. And we know what that means. And that's sad. But you hear all kinds of things said. That's not exactly what Scripture tells us. And we have all kinds of ideas. We need to make sure that we study. And then the third thing is we have to understand the questioner. Who's asking? Is this someone who honestly is seeking truth or is this someone who's who's angry at God? Maybe fighting. Maybe they're being haunted. Francis Thompson wrote a great poem called The Hound of Heaven where he describes the Holy Spirit as a hound chasing down the alleys and down the labyrinthine ways. He says, following me, follow me on my heels. Maybe that's happening. And so they're fighting against that because they're scared. C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion. He says, I was the most reluctant, brought into a room, kicking and screaming, eyes darting to and fro, the most reluctant convert in all of England. He did not want to submit, but he was chased. Maybe they're fighting that. Maybe they've been hurt. And they're hurting, and they're fighting against something they think is the thing that hurt them. Right? Those, those three things require different approaches in how we handle people. Is this an intellectual objection? They really don't understand or don't believe. Or is it a moral rebellion? Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, before he became a Christian, said this. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. I consequently assumed that it had none, and was able then to have, with no difficulty, to find satisfying reasons to believe what I wanted to believe. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness, or no God, was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. In other words, I could do what I wanted because I didn't have to be held to those standards. There's no problem finding objections when you've already decided you're going to fight something. right? George MacDonald said, by the way, Aldous Huxley became a Christian six years after writing that, um, because he knew the truth. And he, just was, he was running from it. George MacDonald said, To give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. Don't be drawn into an argument and a fight. What happens in an argument? Very quickly, the point shifts from getting to the truth to winning the argument. In effect, you're arguing about arguing, right? And you're trying to win. There's an old Indian proverb that says, There's no point handing a man a rose to smell once you've cut off his nose. Right? If you, you can be the greatest debater, you can know all the facts, you can decimate someone. Are they going to listen to you after that? After you embarrass them and humiliate them? They're not. We need to be gracious. Um, also, we have to be aware of the periphery of the conversation. Who else is listening? These aren't always one-on-one interactions. Is there someone there? Maybe the opportunity for the person to be reached is not the person across from you who's being really obnoxious and tempting you to want to, you know, hit them with your Bible and teach them, right? Maybe it's the person who's listening, saying, yeah, I'd like to hear that answer. Or they're watching to see how you react and how you behave. We need to be aware of them. So we need to keep those things in mind as we approach these things, not be on the defensive. Understand who we're talking to and be prepared. There are some basic principles in Bible interpretation, what we call hermeneutics. It's just basically understanding what the scriptures are and a right interpretation of what they're meaning. I'm going to go through just three of them here. Um, The first is we have to understand what the Bible is and what it isn't. The Bible is a library of books. It's not a book. And we have to be aware as we interpret it that that's that's what's going on. There are 66 books written over 1,500 years, over four authors, three continents, three languages, many different circumstances and and places in life of the authors, Um, literary styles including personal correspondence, historical um, uh, narrative, uh, poetry, songs, All of those things, we treat them differently. We interpret them differently when we look at ancient literature, and we should do the same with the Bible. We don't treat songs like they're historical narrative. So the Bible's a library, not a book. It's written for us, but not to us. There is no epistle to us. and There's nothing written to me, but it's written for me. It's authoritative. The Bible tells us it's it's inspired, and it's there for me. Um, We have to know it wasn't written to me at this time, in this place, in this culture but is written to other people in other cultures at other times. I'm essentially looking over their shoulder, trying to understand what did this mean to them? What was the author telling them in their place? And now from that, we draw principles that we apply today. There's a difference between timeless and timely directions. For example, in the Old Testament, the Israelites are given specific instructions about the handling of the tabernacle, really detailed. And if you've read those passages, you wonder why in the world am I reading this in my devotions? I don't have to carry the temple. I don't have to pack it up. I don't have to set it up. I don't have to do all these things. Why is this important? Well, it isn't. God isn't telling us to set up our tabernacle. There is something to be extracted from that, though. And that's the holiness of those items and how God, how seriously he took those things. You do it this way and not this way. You do it like this and not like that. You don't touch this. This person is allowed to do it, but nobody else. Those are serious things. And so that's the principle we draw. But that direction is timely. It's for that time thou shalt not kill, is timeless, right? And so we have those differences, and we have to be aware of them and pay attention to them. Everyone likes Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and not a future. Come on, how many have a mug, right? It's a beautiful verse. But if you just take that as a promise, God's going to make everything work out for me, you've missed the point, because Jeremiah is writing that to the exiles in Babylon okay, they've just watched Jerusalem be destroyed. The walls flattened, the temple burned, all the items taken, the king's sons all slaughtered in front of his eyes, and the king's eyes were put out, and they're now in Babylon. And Jeremiah, and they never thought Jerusalem would be destroyed because the temple was there. God would never bring judgment and do anything to his temple or allow anything to happen to the temple. And their whole world's been shattered. And Jeremiah has already told them, you're going to be there 70 years. So this promise is not for a good day. Get out your mug. Right? This promise is not for that. He's reminding them that I haven't forgotten you as a people. And I will bring my people back. Most of them would never see that. So we have to understand these promises in the context in which they're given. So the Bible is a library, not a book. It's written for us, but not to us. And then the third one comes from Greg Kokel. Never read a Bible verse. Right? Never read just a verse. Read the passage it's in. Read the chapter it's in. Understand the book that it's in. Where does that book fit within the New Testament or the Old Testament? Where does it fit within the overall narrative of Scripture? Um, it's important. Um, this is a, It's probably the most dangerous error Christians make, only because we just do it so much, right? We take all the. And you, you know, nobody makes a mug out of the the warnings and threats and and judgments. They're all about promises, right? And those promises are good. We know that God, and they tell us that God loves us. But we need we overemphasize that, and we make that mistake. All the time. Um, we need to be very clear-eyed that the words, for example, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and 11, he may, plans to prosper you. Well, we think, oh, that's great, he's going to prosper me. Keep in mind, God's view of prospering you may not be your view of prospering you. We and Craig likes to say that we, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking God's highest priority is the happiness of his human pets. But that's not true. God's not concerned necessarily with your happiness today. He's concerned with your soul for eternity. And sometimes to do what he needs to do in your life, he brings you he brings you through things that are hard. And that's understated. He brings you through terrible things that you never thought you should go through and don't think you, you're, don't think you deserve. And he brings you through these things, and we don't know why. And we may never know why, but he knows why. And we have to trust in him. But we have to know um, the context of the verse and, and understand what's being said and what isn't being said. So four specific challenges, we're going to get into a few of these specific challenges that come to the Bible. Four questions we want to keep in the back of our mind as these challenges come. The first is, when there's conflict, are we interpreting the Bible correctly? Are we stepping back and doing the things we just talked about and looking at it correctly? Are we claiming certainty when there should be some room left for different views? Maybe we're being too dogmatic about the Bible says this, and we should be a little, well, the Bible says this is what's. We know this is what we're not sure about. There could be different interpretations. Are we being too dogmatic? Are we comparing apples and oranges? We're going to see that. We have something called this today. The Bible has something called this. Therefore, they're the same. And the Bible, obviously, is cruel. Well, that isn't always true because they're apples and oranges. They're not, we're not comparing the same thing. And are we holding ancient cultures to the standards and perspectives of today's culture? This is important. We've seen this recently. You may have, if you're paying attention to the events in Canada... You'll see there's certain things with respect, it didn't happen so much this time with that, but there are certain things going on there with respect to free speech. They don't have free speech like we have in the United States. As a matter of fact, the United States is very unique in that regard, that free speech doesn't exist in most of Europe, being just like us. And you can be prosecuted for certain things you say. There's a a pastor, I think, in Finland who's on trial right now, right, for saying things that you would normally say uh, in, in church. Okay, that that are normal, that are God's word, but it's considered hate speech. So we we forget in America just how good it is. Now we try and take ancient cultures and say, well, it should be like it is here. And it just isn't that way. And we need to be fair to the scripture and look at, this is describing what happened in ancient times. What was it like then versus what it's like now? So the first one, and we can't go into this in too much depth, only because we don't have weeks and weeks, but is the Bible anti-science? Does the Bible contradict science? Billy Graham said this, he goes, oh, I don't think, this is an interview with David Frost. Oh, I don't think that there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we've misinterpreted the scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the scriptures say things that they weren't meant to say, and I think we've made a mistake by thinking that the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption, and of course, I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe he created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or this being and made them a living soul or not does not change the fact that God did create man. What's he saying there? Billy Graham is saying, I will go as far as the Bible goes, but I'm not going to go and demand an interpretation further than that, right? And I'm I'm going to say, look, I know he created man. I don't know exactly how. I know he created the universe. I don't know exactly how. The reason I don't know is the Bible hasn't necessarily tried to tell us that. But it is very clear that he did create the universe. And so we need to be careful in how we hold some of those views because we open ourselves up to criticism only because we're not actually accurately interpreting the scripture. The Bible's not a science book. It uses everyday language. One of the criticisms you'll hear is that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about because he said the mustard seed is the smallest seed. But that's not what he was trying to communicate. He wasn't writing a botany book. He was saying that it's a very tiny seed, grows into a big plant. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And it, it's figurative language. And it's, it's ridiculous and it's unfair to try and make that, make that claim. And we should be bold in asserting that. Um, we've got to be careful about holding views just because we've always held them. It's hard when you believe something for a long time to start to question it. But we need to be open and seeking mostly after the truth. When the truth is a priority, things work out better. When we just want to hold our view because we've always held it, That gets us in trouble, and we need to be careful. And then lastly, we need to be diligent in understanding the science. Very often, when the science comes here, there's a conflict here. The science isn't complete or correct. Up till about, say, a hundred years ago, it was assumed that the universe was eternal. That was what was typically taught. And there was some controversy. And then we found through microwaves, background radiation, other things, it became clear that the universe actually had a beginning, which is very consistent with scripture. Right, That's exactly what the scripture teaches. All at once, out of nothing, God created. Right, But that was held up as being certain. There are things now that are held up as being certain. They're not always certain. We need to actually know the science a little bit to say, hey, wait a minute. We don't know that. So you're making claims and saying the Bible contradicts it. Well, that might not be true. And we need to be careful. Um, An example of this could be the idea of the multiverse. Everyone's heard about the multiverse. Oh, it's absolutely true. There's no evidence of a multiverse. We can't if you think about it, it can't actually be proven because it's outside of this universe. It's just an idea that somebody has. And they'll do mathematical models, right? But everyone who's already modeling knows when you do mathematical models, there's a whole bunch of assumptions. And if you tweak those assumptions, the outputs are very different. So there's a lot of room for error, and we need to be aware of that. And we need to actually um, prepare sometimes. If we're in this discussion, if someone raises issues, it's okay to say, hey, you know what? I need to look into that and go back and do a little research and figure it out. There are sources available. The next question we reach, or we hit sometimes, is does the Bible endorse slavery? Excuse me. So most of the difficult passages about the Bible in the Bible about slavery are in the Old Testament, and they have a lot to do around the Israelites coming into Canaan. And basically, there's no command to own slaves, but there is there are rules around the circumstance of owning slaves, which basically we can say that at the very least the Bible doesn't forbid it. Which is cruel, right? The Bible should forbid slavery. And that's the objection. Okay? There are a couple of things we should remember. One, the slavery described in the Old Testament is nothing like American slavery that existed here for several hundred years, to our shame. In American slavery, the slaves were chattel property. That means anything but real estate is chattel, personal property. The slave owner could do whatever he wants, with and to them. Families could be split up. There were no repercussions. They had no rights. They were not considered human right? That's what, that was American slavery. Not just American, Caribbean, other places, but that was American slavery. And that existed in a lot of the world for a lot of human history. That's not what the Bible describes for the Israelites. Um, there are basically two types of slaves that the Bible talks about when he's talking to the Israelites and giving them instructions. The first is a Hebrew slave, okay? A person who's destitute or has debts and can't settle it. It's a form of welfare. He can sell himself to someone as a slave. He becomes, he, he becomes that person's slave he gets out of his financial issue. He becomes part of the household. And there's strict regulations in how he must be treated. Okay? He, first of all, he's only a slave for six years. And then he has to be set free. Right? He can, um, if he's injured, if the, if the slave owner injures him, he's set free right away. No payment, no return of money. If he's killed, and this is important, if he's killed, the slave owner is subject to capital punishment in return. What does that tell you about the slave in this case? He's human, he has dignity, and his life is worth something. And if you kill him, you're, you're to be executed. You can't do that. You can't treat him that way. So it's actually a form of sort of like a welfare, social welfare system. And they were, um, very often, they would decide, and there's a provision for this, I think it's in Exodus 15 where it's described, after the six years, the slave could say, no, I don't want to leave. I want to stay in this part of this household. And it says specifically, because he loves you and loves your household. And then we're a little squeamish today, but they, we take, they took him to the doorpost with an awl, and they pinned th- his, through his ear the awl to the doorpost. And the imagery there is, I'm attached to this household forever. I'm part of this family, and I come under its protection. And in that, you exchange your work, but I come under its protection and, and choose to do that. And that was the sermon you would go through, and that person would, would choose to stay there. It was voluntary. The second type of slavery were basically prisoners of war. What happens with that? Now, <clears throat> you can imagine what happened to prisoners of war in the ancient world, right? It wasn't good. So again, this is a form. The Israelites were to be different. They were not to treat them like others did. They were to be taken as, as, as slaves, but they had the same rules about their conduct. Other than the six-year limitation, they were, they were not um, free after six years, but they were, the same rules about their treatment applied. If you injured them, you had to set them free. If you killed them, you were subject to capital punishment. So this actually was far better. What do you think would happen? Prisoners of war, you can imagine, very often they're widows and children because their husband was killed in the war. What do you think happened if they were set free in the ancient world? Right? It's pretty scary. Right? They came under the protection of the household, and it was a way to provide actually safety for them. And we have to remember those contexts, and this is not in the United States today where you have laws to protect you and you could walk around and be freed. It wasn't like that. Uh, the next thing is, does the Bible command, next, next big challenge, does the Bible command or endorse genocide? All right. Um, this is particularly related to the conquest of the promised land. There's a little bit later with Saul with the Amalekites, but in Deuteronomy 20 it's described, and there's a few things. First of all, cities that were far away, that were not part of the promised land, they were to first offer them peace. If they accepted, they were allowed to live peaceably, and they would become servants or slaves of the Israelites with all the protections we just talked about. And they wouldn't be killed. And that was fine. If they decided to fight, the men would be killed, the women and children would become slaves and be protected, they wouldn't be turned loose. And the Lord says specifically that all of that property would go to the Israelites as a gift from the Lord. Too. But it was different for the cities within the promised land, where God was pronouncing judgment. Okay, for them, they were the word is called haram, and it means devoted to destruction. Now, you've heard that phrase before, but it actually is the parallel or the flip side of the word sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, sanctification is the process of, with, say, the tabernacle implements, they were sanctified. Aaron and his sons were set apart and sanctified for service, to be, for the glory of God and the use of God's service. And they were holy. It's a beautiful image to what God does with us at salvation. He sets us aside. We're set aside to be used for service for the Lord. You know, we we read that verse all the time. We like it. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. We forget the very next verse, which says, For we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. Those things are prepared for you to do. He's waiting for you to do them. He's waiting for me to do them. They're prepared in advance. We're set aside and sanctified to do those things in his service. The flip side to that, though, are these instruments devoted to destruction. They're to be killed because of sin. Why? Well, four or five hundred years earlier, Abraham was told about this. He was given a prophecy. Your people, you're going to become a great nation. They're going to leave the promised land. You're going to be oppressed and mistreated in a foreign nation. I'm going to punish that nation and bring you out and bring you back here in in a little over four hundred years because the sin of the Amorites isn't yet complete. So the reason it's gonna be that long, and the reason you're gonna be taken out of here, and even what you're gonna go through is to keep you out of here, they have he's basically giving them four to five hundred years to repent. But he's seeing into the future, and God who knows the future doesn't mean he caused it. They had the right they could have repented, but he knows the future, knows what's gonna happen, and he knows he's gonna to have to bring judgment because of their sin. And the sin of the Canaanites is legendary. You may have heard some of them. Do you remember the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah? When the angels came? What happened? Within hours, they got to town. All the men of the town, said, it didn't say some of the ones or the bad ones, it says all the men of the town came out and said, bring them out to us so we can rape them. This was the, the stuff that went on. This was common in those cities, that type of sin. We talk about the God, it's Molech, where he, his hands are out like this, and they're made out of metal, and they would f- burn fires around them and heat the metal, and they would place live children inside those hands to sacrifice them. And God talks about that over and over again. And He said to the Israelites, they have to be destroyed for their sin. They have to be removed. They cannot be among you or near you or they will pull you into that sin. Now, the Israelites, if we know now, they didn't completely do it. What happened? That's exactly what happened. They went back into that same sin. And over and over, God said, He specifically to the child sacrifice, He goes, which I never planned for you to do, which I never intended. You can almost hear God's heartbreaking when He describes this sin and what it does. Right. This is sin. the reason this is hard for us today to understand why someone has to be killed for sin is because we don't appreciate sin, we just don't get how serious it is. We're used to forgiveness, but if we don't take it seriously, you can't really under, we won't understand justice when the just consequences of sin are delayed. The result is a sinner begins to expect or even demand forgiveness and a pass, and we raise children. If you have a kid who does something wrong every day, and every day you say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, but there's no punishment. There's never a corrective. And then you suddenly decide today's the day, and you do it. What's the kid's reaction? Oh, I deserve that. You told me. I know. I kept a list, Dad. You told me 23 times. So now, now it's due. No, it's, they're outraged. How dare you punish me? You didn't punish me yesterday. You didn't punish me three weeks ago Thursday. Right? We just become soft. We just think that everything should be forgiven. God is a God of grace and love and forgiveness, but he's also a God of justice. You see, justice, if it's not bounded, if it's unbounded by mercy and love and and grace, is harsh and cruel and authoritarian. It's not really justice unless it's restrained and bound up by those things and controlled. But in the same sense, right, mercy and grace, unbounded by justice, is just accommodation. And you accommodate things, and by doing that, you actually destroy the person you say you love, by not bringing them to account there has to be in true love there's a mix of justice and love and mercy and grace that comes around that brings a balance that brings the corrective when it's needed and because of that God judged those people C.S. Lewis talks about sin in a passage about Christ asserting that he's God he talks about the fact that here he goes around forgiving people for sins that were committed against somebody else that doesn't seem right I mean, what would you think of me if somebody came up and, and stepped on your toe and I said, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. You said, well, wait a minute, it wasn't your toe. It was my toe, right? We, we don't understand, and yet Jesus did that. What does that mean? It means that what he's telling us, what he's teaching us, is that sin is primarily an offense against God and only secondarily an offense against the person we see here. It's primarily a sin against God and his word and his love. And we need to remember that. So these are difficult things. These are hard passages, especially with non-Christians, to understand sin and justice. But as Christians, we need to understand them well. For If nothing else, it helps us appreciate God's grace, right? And then finally, the last one we're going to talk about is the Bible misogynistic. as an anti-woman? There are a number of things that are brought up here in the Old Testament. They fall under the category similar to the ones we, things we talked about. Where they're just misunderstood, there are protections in place to protect women that seem harsh. Like if a woman's raped, she then has to go and marry, the man has to marry her. Why would you make her do that? Because she'd be disgraced, and otherwise she'd be on her own, and she'd probably be killed or raped again. And this brought her under protection, and he is held account, and now he has a financial obligation because of what he did. So there are, there are things like that, that you have to understand. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, because I wanted to focus on something we all have heard and talked about, and I think is richly misunderstood from the New Testament, and that's this. Does the Bible really say that wives have to submit to their husbands? Does that, is that really what it says? That would be horrible for half of us. Um, so let's see what Paul really says, okay? In, in Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, 22 to 24, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And here's the thing, when you study that word submit, and you pull it apart, and you do all the etymology, and you look at the Greek and everything, the meaning actually is submit. There's nothing complicated there. There's no nuance, there's no, well, it doesn't really mean, no, it means that. It means what it says. So how do we interpret that? What does that mean? Well, the important thing here is submission in this context is voluntary. You notice that this submission is given from one person to another, not taken. See, we have an American view of submission. Right? Maybe, just America, maybe just the modern view, which is that submission is something forced upon the weaker by the stronger right, or the superior. And so the weaker one is in submission. They're oppressed by whoever they're submitting to. But Paul's talking about giving submission. He's telling wives to do it. Um, and notice he doesn't tell the husbands, subjugate your wives and make them submit to you. He tells the wives, give submission as to the Lord. Willing, and when it's given willing to the Lord, it now becomes a gift that's given by an equal to an equal. You know how we know that? The verse before in verse 21, Paul says to the Christians in the church, to everyone, including the husbands and wives who were sitting there, submit to one another. Well, now wait a minute. You told me in verse 22 that my wife has to submit to me. I have to submit to her too. That's what he said. So now you see there's a mutuality here. This isn't a one-way street. And the submission within the home from the wife is voluntarily given by an equal to an equal, not taken or forced on anybody. The basis for the submission is not the husband's position or strength, but it's obedience to the Lord. Let's look at a few other places this verse is, or this kind of concept is used. Ephesians 5.21, we just talked about it, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.22, we read it again, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord. Colossians 3 20, children obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6 5, slaves obey your masters as you would Christ. Colossians 3, slaves obey your masters, fearing the Lord. Work for them as for the Lord, because you are serving the Lord Christ. You see what's happening here? He's saying, you do this for them out of obedience to me. It's directed to me, it's not something that's taken or forced or abusive. In other words, God did not, guys, give us the right to sit on the couch, put our feet up, turn on ESPN, and go, beverage! I'm, I'm, I'm reliably informed that's not allowed. <laughs> um, still not allowed? Still, okay, I check once in a while, and um, still not allowed. Don't do that. Um, that's not the point here. And so see, when we begin to look at the passage and look at a more, a more full description of how this word and this concept of submission is used, and look at other passages, and, and you can follow on, we don't have time today, to look at, as Paul develops that passage, he then shows that the whole institution of marriage is a, is a type of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ in Christ. The whole purpose for marriage in creation is to give the example of Christ and his bride. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. It's not needed anymore. Okay. But the purpose the from the very beginning is to show just as Christ, the bride is, the church is the bride of Christ, the husband and the wife's relationship is the same, and Christ is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that's a tremendous calling on the husband. Right. Um, so, it, it's, again, it doesn't once you look into it, it's not the way it might sound if we really just look at it in a cursory way these are these topics are a little bit you know they're more classroom oriented they 're not really um, emotional, but in closing, I just wanted to kind of make a point here, and this is this is really the application part for us right The key for us is to have an intimate relationship with god 's word because we see things differently when we have an intimate relationship with someone when challenges come um, i 'll give you an example. When I, about 15 years ago, I worked for a company, and we were involved in a, a big merger. And so, after the merger, I ended up having the joy of reporting to two people, who were vying to be the next CEO. And and they didn't like each other, and they were in different cities, and they were in competition, which was a joy for me, right? And fortunately for me, one of them—they're both good guys actually—and so I got along. I got along well with both of them, but it was it caused some problems for me. And I was one of them is a Christian, and a, and a good friend of mine, and so. I was sitting with him one day, he was in my office and we were talking and you know, he was griping about something. I said, Look, you guys gotta go out and play some golf. And he looked at me like I had three heads, so what do you mean? Right? I said, Well and those of you who play golf know what I'm talking about. You're gonna spend a day, you're gonna watch the other guy hit some embarrassingly bad shots, and you're not gonna say anything. And whenever he hits a moderately good shot, he's a good shot, right? And you're going to pick up each other's clubs on the green. You're going to pull the pin for the other guy. You're going to sit next to him in a golf cart and drive like maniacs. You're going to do all these things together, and you're going to spend a day, and you're going to realize at the end of the day, the guy doesn't have pointy ears and a tail. right? He's actually not that bad. right? And then what's going to happen is that relationship develops is when you hear something that sounds wrong, the first thing you think is not that guy. It's going to be, let me find out what's going on. I'll give you a better example. Someone comes running in and says, Amy just beat a kid over the head with a ginormous box of goldfish. And she's got them in there. Okay? And raised a wealth. The kid is crying. It's horrible. she got fed up with the kid. And so she beat him over the head repeatedly. And now, you know, we got a problem. I know that can't be told. Now, if you told it it was one of my boys or me, I would say, okay, yeah, it's it's a day ending and why. But but I know that's because she loves the kids. I I know that didn't happen. There's got to be something I'm missing. Why? Because I've known Amy for 35 years. As a matter of fact, today, we've been married 33 and a half years. <laughs> Even murderers get parole. Um, but, but not you, I meant. Not, not me, I meant. Not you. Um, a wave of terror just hit me. Um, but because of the relationship, because I know her, I know that can't be right. Askin, in his book, God in the Dark, talks about Abraham when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac. He didn't understand any of this. None of this made sense of what God had told him in the past. But he says, Abraham didn't know why, but he knew the God who knew why. And that was enough. And so he trusted. Now, that's a great passage if you read it and you see that Abraham went, and to the very end, he said, God's going to provide the sacrifice. And he went right to the point because he knew. He just knew God and he trusted him, whatever his will was. I want to close this story. I read this story five years ago, but the challenge for us is to develop and to rekindle in ourselves a love for God's word, a desire to learn it and study it. And, be, and These challenges are not a problem when you prepare, when you're prepared. But we need in our lives to, be, to hold the word so close. You know, David writes in the Psalms, Thy word have I hid in my heart, so that, why? So I won't sin against you. It's important, it's an important corrective. And I wanted to read this story, and I gave it the title, Precious. Um, if you, may, you may remember it, but uh, John Bechtel was a missionary with his wife Donna in Hong Kong for 40 years. His parents had been missionaries in China. His dad spent some time when the Japanese invaded World War II in a prison camp. But his mom, he and his mom escaped, and then he and his wife served for 40 years. In the mid-'70s, he was visiting the city of Guilin in communist China with his wife and a friend named Gordon MacDonald and his son. And he was desperate. He wanted to meet a Chinese Christian. He knew they existed, that they were very hard to find. And he was desperate to meet one. And they brought some Bibles to give to them. They made all these questions he wanted to ask. And one day while he was out doing something, his wife met some Christians. He wasn't there. And she gave them all the Bibles. And then she, in her excitement, she forgot to ask any of the questions that they talked about. And he came back and he missed them. And he didn't have his, his answers. And so he was very dis, you know, disappointed. And he went out for a walk. And he saw this woman walking who just seemed particularly stylish. So he went up to her and he said, excuse me do you know where I could buy some perfume? Now, he knew very well that at that time in communist China, there was no perfume. wasn't allowed. And so he knew that, but he asked her anyway. And she said, well... And she went like, oh, I can still smell it. She goes, but there is no perfume. And she told him what he already knew, that you couldn't have perfume. And he told her, I have perfume, hoping desperately his wife actually did. And I will give it to you if you can introduce me to a Christian. And she said, I know a Christian. And so they made the arrangements to meet that night, and she was going to take them to meet a Christian. John went back to the hotel, took his wife's nearly empty perfume bottle, filled it with water, shook it up, and they went that night to meet this lady. And they got to a two-story house in a street, went up to a small room, a bed, a table, a chair, and a single candle, and they waited for the Christian to come back. And so he asked her, can you tell me about this Christian that we're going to meet? So the woman says, oh, everybody knows her. He so your parents own this house and all the property in this area. They were Christians. When the communists came, because her parents were wealthy and educated, they were killed. She was put on trial in a stadium with several thousand people watching her. She was made to stand naked before the judge with a dunce cap and a sign that simply said Christian. This is not uncommon, by the way, if you look into what went on in communist China under Mao, when they put people on trial, very often they'd have a sign and something to shame them. It It was very common. The judge told her that if she renounced Christ, he would let her go. We all held our breath, hoping she would just renounce Christ and be done with it. I mean, she could always repent later, right? But she wouldn't do it. She said, told the judge, I will follow Jesus for the rest of my life. He became very angry, and he sentenced her to clean the gutters and sewers and the filth on these streets around this area for the rest of her life. She now lives in the servants' quarters of this house, which her parents once owned, and she's now 62 years old. It's been 30 years. They then heard loud footsteps in the hall and in burst a short, fat Chinese lady with a smile from ear to ear. And she sees John and she goes, are you a Christian? And he goes, yeah. She goes, let me hear you pray. And so he begins to pray. And as he's praying, he goes, I snuck a peek and I watched her. And tears were streaming down her face. And when he finished, she said, that's the first time I've heard a Christian speak or pray in 30 years. And, and John said, why don't you pray? And so she began to pray, and despite everything she'd been through and all that had happened, the first words out of her mouth were, I praise you. And she said over and over, I praise you, I praise you. She went on like that for a few minutes, praising him. And then she changed and said, I thank you. I thank you. And she began thanking him for all that she had. There's nothing there. But she's thanking him for all that she has. When she's done, when she finishes, John offers her all the money he can spare. And she's insulted. She goes, I don't want that. He goes, well, what can I do for you? And she goes, all I want in the whole world is a Bible. Can you have a Bible? And he's like, Donna gave them all away. He has no more. They're going to leave at 10 o'clock the next morning. He goes, I'll get one. And they leave. When they get back to, he doesn't know how, but when he gets back to the hotel, he sees a pastor from Hong Kong they know. His name is Ronald Yu. And he sees them there checking in. He goes, wow, do you have any Bibles? He goes, yes, I have six. But they caught me with them in customs. And they wrote on my passport, six Bibles in, six Bibles out. I can't give them to you. I can't give them away. So John says, let me borrow them for the night. So he takes the six Bibles back to his room. He opens the first one and he cuts out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then he goes to the next one and he cuts out another section. And he goes to each of them and cuts out different sections. And his wife sits up all night sewing them together. They take a t shirt and use it for a cover. He puts the others back together. In the morning, he hurriedly gives them to Pastor Pastor Yu, hoping he won't notice. And he does say that later on, he got through customs, it was fine. No one noticed that there were pieces missing from these Bibles. And at 6 a.m., he grabs his friend, Gordon, and they rush out to see this lady. When they got there, they found her sitting on her bed praying for a Bible. They brought all the clothes that they didn't need for their trip home and offered them to her. And she said, put them over there, just dismissed them. So they put them over there. They offered her all the money they had that they, could, that they had pulled together that they didn't need. It was four years' wages for her. She goes, put that over there, too. She goes, I didn't ask for any of that. All I asked for was a Bible, just that one thing. And John said, I have it. And he pulls out, he goes, the sorriest excuse for a Bible you could ever see. But that was not how she saw it. She took it and she held it. And over and over again in Cheney, she said, precious, precious. Precious. She started to cry. She pointed to the clothes and the money. He goes, that's not precious. Those things aren't precious. Only this is precious. There's only one thing, and it's this. I haven't held it or seen it for 30 years. I know some of it, but now I can know all of it. She was excited because she would be able to study it and learn it. She went on and on about how much this crummy Bible meant to her. And then she said to him, this lady sending a message back to the United States. Go back and tell the people in your country that the answer is found in this book. This book is precious. Nothing else. Do we look at our Bible, whether it's on our device or we, hold, we have or whatever we have? Do we look at that that way? Do we cherish it? Do we appreciate how accessible it is to us, and and or do we just take it for granted? The tools, the ability to study that we have are like nothing before in human history. Do we really care? And do we use it? That's the challenge for us today. While the worship team comes, let's just close in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us. We thank you for your word, living and active. We thank you, Lord, for the work that it does in our lives, for the instruction, Lord, for the guidance, for the comfort, for the power. Lord, I pray that you would convict us Lord renew in us a love for your word a desire to study and to learn and to know what it says to cherish it above all else to hold it precious to cherish its teachings and to let them work in our lives and shine through to others pray that you should be with us Lord challenge us Lord we thank you in Jesus name